so many drama queens in that movement. Isn't it? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. No, I'm not. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. Out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us once again for another thrilling action-packed adventure that we call The Bradcast. We've got uh, a lot, a lot to get to today, a lot to try to fit in. Wish me luck with that. Um, among the things we have to get in, uh, some uh, some breaking news the Oregon standoff, the Oregon militia standoff up there at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge is finally over. It appears that the last four armed dead enders who had taken over that refuge have now come out, surrendered to federal officials after increasingly intense negotiations between them and the FBI over the past 24 hours or so. A lot of their bizarre rants and negotiations uh, with the federal officials were broadcast live by the holdouts uh, up there at the uh, wildlife refuge for a number of hours over YouTube on Wednesday night. It had it had been more than 40 days since the two sons of Scofflaw Nevada rancher Cliven Bundy joined with the others in the uh, in the so-called Patriot movement to take over the federal refuge in protest of the jailing of two local ranchers and as a protest of some sort over federal control of lands in the West, the two sons of Cliven Bundy, Ammon and uh, uh, Ryan Bundy, were arrested with a number of others about two weeks ago after they had left the refuge in Harney County, Oregon, near the city of Burns. To meet with a sheriff in a neighboring county, officials had arrested eight of the protesters while they were on the road at that time, shooting and killing one of the group's spokesmen, Robert Lavoie Finnicum. After he had initially attempted to evade law enforcement officials in his SUV and that, according to the FBI, was believed to be reaching for a gun that he had on him, though others uh, believe that he was attempting to uh, give himself up to officials. But as tensions rose during those negotiations last night with the last four holdouts still at the refuge on Wednesday, Cliven Bundy himself was also arrested on his way 
uh, to Burns, Oregon, from Nevada. He was heading to the refuge, reportedly. The 74-year-old Bundy had been at the center of that 2014 armed standoff with federal officials over grazing rights on federal lands. He, uh, that eventually resulted in the feds backing off after they were uh, faced down with military-style weaponry from Bundy's supporters. But the but the arrest now of the elder Bundy at the airport in Portland, Oregon, on Wednesday night uh, comes in response to that 2014 armed standoff. So it took a while, but I guess they got their man. Uh, Bundy has now the uh, the older one, uh, Cliven Bundy, has been now been charged with conspiracy to interfere with a federal officer, assault, obstruction, weapons charges, and other crimes. Meanwhile, back at the refuge, the last holdout uh, this morning was a guy by the name of David Fry. He's an Ohio resident who had uh, he had become the public face of the occupation because of his uh, frequent video posts and live streams from inside the uh, refuge itself. Before the occupation, he had uh, made social media posts, including things like hashtag pray for ISIS, hashtag Hitler was right. And the phrase Obama needs to be hung after being found guilty for treason in all caps. Yeah, that's the kind of guy he was. Uh, other than that, this isn't political. At all. This is you know not partisan. They're not against Democrats or anything like that. Uh, last night during the live stream with uh, that was the negotiations, if we can call them that, with officials. Uh, another one of the holdouts, Sean Anderson, was heard yelling, Did your boss send you here to kill innocent Americans? That's according to the uh, newspaper, The Oregonian. At another point, uh, an agent was her overheard uh, on a loudspeaker saying, David, to David Fry, David, I want to talk to you. What do you want? David Fry replied before yelling, You guys killed Lavoie and you let Obama bring terrorists into our country. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, uh, Fry, uh, actually, we have a little bit of that audio. Uh, this is just some of it. We can't play much of it because it was, uh, it was yeah, too much screwed. profanity to air on FCC yeah, radio and too difficult to bleep out. But it, this the, gives you a flavor, a flavor of the mental state of David Fry, the final holdout. Unless my grievances are heard, I will not come out. David, they're hearing. It's all right. They're hearing. The whole world's hearing. you got 20,000 people hearing. Just go ahead and go out. Go on, David. We've got this, man. Up on the phone! Yeah. So there you go. Uh, that was David Fry, uh, part of those uh, hours of broadcast last night from the refuge. Uh, and after this morning saying that he was uh, felt like killing himself, uh, he did finally turn himself in peacefully. So the Oregon showdown that began on January 2nd, it's finally over. And uh, in the end, three Bundys who were involved in the uh, 2014 armed uh, standoff against federal officials and who had faced no penalties at the time, three Bundys are now in jail facing long legal battles and uh, in response to their criminal indictments at this time. Smartly done, boys. Yeah. I well mean, played. There were quite a few people who were very angry with the FBI mm -hmm. and the state and local authorities for not jumping in and making this end sooner. And I think that that's, um, you know, that maybe well, this waiting game seems to have paid off. Well, listen, a lot of uh, a lot of people thought that the FBI should have uh, moved faster, should have, uh, you know, not let them. I mean, it was weird that they they were allowed to come and yes. go into into town. 
that they weren't arrested at the time that they you know would leave to go into town to get supplies. So that was kind of weird. On the other hand, and other people have compared it to, well, what if, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, African-Americans had taken over a federal facility, a bunch of armed African-Americans had taken over. And there is an historical precedence for that. Back in the early 90s, there were a group of, uh, and and I don't remember the exact name of the group, but at the time they were complaining about federal treatment of black farmers, black agriculture farmers. Um, And and they were, from what I recall, they were were, uh, taken out in a violent confrontation. So I think you can clearly be, uh, uh, you know, critical uh, for the uh, for the disparity between the treatment. Obviously, uh, I think that uh, if they had been black protesters, they would not have been uh, given, you know, quite the gen- gentle treatment uh, that these guys were. On the other hand, I, I don't want to see the FBI be uh, tougher. Uh, you know, be yeah. more uh, violent. Aggressive. I want right, more aggressive. Right. I want to see them treat everyone with the same kit gloves that they seem to give uh, these people up in Oregon. Uh, other than that shooting, of course. But, uh, you know, to give them the time, uh, you know, to come out, to come out on their own terms and, uh, you know, peacefully try to have everybody come out peacefully. Of course, contrast that, by the way, with the way that officials had violently cracked down on the peaceful uh, and unarmed Occupy Wall Street protests around the country a few years ago. So very different. It would be very nice if we had some consistency and they were all treated uh, uh, so carefully and peacefully in any event. That is now over uh, up in Oregon, other than the fact that the so-called Patriot Movement now has uh, one guy who has been killed. And I'm sure they will make a martyr out of him as well as uh, a whole bunch of people who are in jail who now they can go out and and protest their jailing, I suppose. Uh, Anyway, that is some breaking news. We've also got some breaking news that I don't even think you know about yet, Desi Doyen, concerning Porter Ranch and the massive gas leak Ah. that is happening outside of Los Angeles. We'll get to that a little bit later along with our latest Green News report. Uh, in which the Supreme Court has taken an unprecedented step to shut down President Obama's uh, clean power plant. Yeah, this is really unbelievable. It is. Also a heat wave in the Arctic (laughs) and uh, a record heat wave uh, and much more ahead. So all of that's coming up a little bit later in the show. I want to get to a couple of items. uh, Let's see, before I get to my guest... Uh, oh, and of course, speaking of Tea Party-like folks, since we're mentioning Oregon, uh, a new study finds empirical evidence that there is one thing that best serves to predict whether someone might identify as a Tea Partier. And you will be shocked to learn it has nothing to do with freedom or big government uh, or government spending, or even economic, uh, you know, fears of the economy, or being taxed enough already, as the Tea Partiers like to say. None of the things that Tea Partiers pretend their movement is about is what their movement is actually about. So one of the uh, the study's uh, authors will join me this hour to explain <clears throat> what it is that they have found to be the one common element among uh, among the Tea Partiers. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, I had promised uh, yesterday uh, to discuss some of the concerns about what went on in New Hampshire. 
And for now, uh, well, let's see. Uh, To tell this story, let me very quickly go back to 2014. On Election Day in 2014, this is a story from uh, from Al Jazeera America that just came out, uh, one of uh, the first of a three-part series on concerns about all of these new photo ID restriction laws that Republicans are putting in place now around the country. And uh, voting rights proponents argue with uh, a great deal of evidence in support that these uh, that these laws are meant to suppress the votes of uh, of minorities, of uh, students, of uh, the elderly, poor people, people who tend to vote Democratic. And uh, I just want to mention this story that they mentioned in Al Jazeera, because a lot of times we talk about this. We talk about photo ID. We talk about voting uh, you know, restrictions w- without personalizing it. Well, here's a, another quick personal story. On Election Day in 2014, after driving more than an hour through a heavy Texas downpour, Kim Stanger finally reached her polling station in the small town of Edom. Do you know where that is, Desi? You're a Texan. Uh, it uh, sounds like Central Texas, right. yeah. When she reached the front of the line, finally, Stanger was asked by a poll worker to present a photo ID. This was a first for this 55-year-old retired kindergarten teacher who had been voting since she was 18. It was at that point that Stanger realized her driver's license was missing. So she had driven an hour in this Texas downpour to go vote, and all of a sudden, oh, no, I don't have a driver's license. But she wasn't worried about it. She said, I had three, three, three separate photo IDs with me, plus my voter registration card, and I know my driver's license number. Stanger said that uh, none of her photo IDs, however, were on the state's approved voter list. The signs posted there only said that you need a, quote, picture ID, Stanger recalls. And I had three of them. I even gave them my driver's license number. They looked it up and they agreed that it matched up with the name and the address on my IDs. But they said I couldn't vote. Eventually, Stanger was given a provisional ballot as required by Texas law. But she says that no one at the polling station informed her that her vote wouldn't even count unless she made a trip to a voter registrar's office within six days of the election and showed an approved photo ID. It was not until weeks after the election, after receiving a notice in the mail saying that her ballot was invalid, that she learned that her vote was never counted. So that's how these laws work. And they will tell you, oh, everybody gets to vote. If you don't have your ID, you can just uh, fill out a provisional ballot. Well, what they don't tell you is that in order for that provisional ballot to even have a chance to vote, you have to figure out how to get the hell back to county headquarters and show them your ID if you even have your ID, if you even have a uh, an acceptable photo ID. Uh, so they can use these laws even in places where they claim, oh, you don't need it. There are ways around it. Uh, they can use these laws to suppress the vote. They can and they do use these laws to suppress the vote. Which takes us back now to New Hampshire. Plymouth State Senior Jack Swimer headed to the polls around 11.30 a.m. to cast a ballot for Senator Bernie Sanders. He tried to take advantage of the state's same-day registration process. But a poll worker told him that uh, since he didn't have proof of his residence, he couldn't vote. He said, I live off campus. The bills are in my roommate's name. 
He said, I wasn't familiar with all the voting laws, so I just did what the poll workers advised because I figured they knew what they were doing. Well, it turns out they did not know what they were doing. Smimer, who had grown up in New Hampshire, now studies graphic design, according to Think Progress, left the polling place dejected, assuming he couldn't vote. He then ran into a team of volunteers from the nonpartisan environmental organization NextGen. Way to go, NextGen. They informed him of his right under the state's new voter ID law to vote by signing an affidavit. And so he went back in and demanded one. New Hampshire was using this photo ID law uh, in Tuesday's primary for the first time ever. And now it includes a requirement that you, if you don't have a photo ID... Uh, They will take a picture of you and you will be allowed to vote. You sign an affidavit, they take your photo and you're allowed to vote. But they didn't tell this guy about that. That's how these laws work. Organizers with NextGen who monitored the polls uh, in the northern uh, college town all day uh, said that Swimer was just one of many students who were illegally turned away without an affidavit, affidavit ballot. Manchester resident Hannah Bristol, the youth vote director for NextGen, said she witnessed several troubling episodes. She said we had kids who were told they couldn't vote with an out-of-state driver's license when that is not true. They were not being offered an affidavit unless they specifically requested one, unless they specifically knew to request one. She said we also helped a student who is a U.S. citizen adopted at a young age from another country. He had his student ID, but they demanded to see his passport. I know his passport or naturalization certificate. Oh, my God. This is ridiculous. She said, I consider that serious racial profiling since they didn't ask any white students to provide their citizenship. Only people with accents or who have brown skin. They didn't see they didn't ask any white students to prove their citizenship. So we're learning more about what went on up in uh, up in New Hampshire. Uh, but these are just some of the things that went on. These are some of the things that will continue to go on in states around the country where Republicans are putting in these uh, photo ID restrictions and they are putting them in place. Make no mistake. Not to stop voter fraud. Obviously, that woman in, in Texas who had three other photo IDs and even her driver's license number, she was not committing voter fraud. And they knew that at the polling place and they still kept her from being able to vote. These are meant to keep Democrats from voting, period. And now a new study out of UC San Diego underscores that once again, as if we don't already have enough evidence that voter ID laws adversely affect the turnout of minorities, and particularly, according to the study, that of Latinos. They looked at uh, some 51 elections in states where they had implemented these strict photo ID laws. And uh, the author's studies say that it very clearly shows how minority voters are affected, how they are adversely and disproportionately affected compared to their white counterparts. According to the study in general elections, states with strict photo ID laws show a Latino turnout 10.3 points. 10 points lower than in states without strict photo ID laws. The law also affected turnout not just in general elections, but in primary elections where Latino turnout decreased by 6.3 points and black turnout decreased by 1.6 points. The gap 
in uh, primary elections between Latino and white turnout tripled in states with the distri- uh, with the restriction. It went from five points to more than 13 points once they instituted photo ID, strict photo ID laws. The gap between Latino and white turnout. The gap between black and white turnout doubled in primaries from about five points to uh, to about eight and a half points. The effect on uh, on Latinos also carried over to general elections where the turnout gap doubled five point three points to twelve points. Mission accomplished. A boys. Man, uh, the uh, the author's uh, the study's author here, Nazita Lajaverdi of UC San Diego said that there is not just racial con- consequences, there are political consequences of these laws. People always surmised that there would be a skew towards the left, but no one has actually shown it this way until now. Indeed, the turnout gap between Republicans and Democrats doubled from 2.3 points to 5.6 points in general elections in strict photo ID states. That's what this is about. Make no mistake. And when you're talking about numbers, even numbers as, as, as small as, you know, one or two percent, go back, take a look at how our elections, uh, how, how close so many of our elections have been over uh, over recent years. And, yeah, even one or two percentage points shaved off makes a huge difference. So that's what all of this is about. That's what we have uh, told you about for years, frankly, even before many people in the Democratic Party started to worry about it, started to realize what the hell was going on here. Well, now it's going on and now it's going to be part of the fight this year just to never mind uh, if they count ballots and, and if they're counted accurately and if they're counted accurately in a way that we can know they're counted accurately. How many people won't even get to cast a vote at all? Anyway, a quick break. Uh, speaking of the right and uh, uh, well, anyway, I, I won't give anything away. Let's take a quick break and we will come back with my guest uh, to talk about tea partiers. Oh, that'll be fun. I'm Brad Friedman. And this is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to help keep us going. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. Just tea for two and two for tea. Just me for you and you for me alone. Yep. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Yes, the tea. Remember the tea party? Remember them? Uh, yeah, they're still there somewhere, I guess. Uh, when uh, Years ago, when the, first, when the tea party was first rising... Uh, we went out to a tea party rally out here in Los Angeles. I think this was October of 2009. And this uh, group calling themselves the Tea Party Express 
claiming to be a you know grassroots organization who had this really really expensive bus and were able to uh, you know just create these rallies all across the country. They kicked off the Tea Party Express tour out here in L.A. We went out and spoke to some of them, some of these uh, Tea Partiers who were rallying there to try and figure out what the hell they were so angry about and why they were blaming Democrats and Obama for whatever it was that they were so angry about. Now, we, we ended up uh, doing a short film. We call it a documentary film, an amusing one, called Rise of the Teabags, which you can see in full at bradblog.com or go over to uh, YouTube. Either way, just search for Rise of the Teabags. Uh, here was one of uh, one, a clip from, uh, from that uh, short video. One, one of my favorites, a guy who was holding a... A sign demanding that uh, Barack Hussein Obama resign. Now, remember, this was in 2009. It was Obama's very first year in office. So here was my exchange with that guy holding that sign, asking him what he was so angry about. Barack Hussein Obama, do America a favor and resign? Right now. Why, why should he resign? Oh, why shouldn't he? This guy's a socialist. He wants to take our freedom, take away our liberty. But tell us all the freedoms that Barack Obama has taken away. Listen to this. Go ahead, tell us. Okay, wait a minute. I got to. No, all of these are the freedoms that Barack Obama has taken away and should resign. And here now, some of those freedoms. Give it to him. For one thing, he wants to take away our freedom of speech. He does? Absolutely. Instead of uh, fighting in Afghanistan, he's over here fighting against FNC, Fox News Channel. So uh, I think how does he want to take away their freedom of speech? Go ahead, tell them how he's taking away their freedom of speech. By turning them off, by just uh, saying, you know what, we can't, uh, we can't have free speech. We're going to turn you off. If it's not my way, it's a highway. But Barack Obama has turned off Fox FNC, Fox no, News. No, no, no. But if he could, he would. If so he's not taking away freedom of speech. Well, he sure would love to. He would sure love to take away the freedom of speech. Okay, so he hasn't taken away freedom of speech. He has, he, he has not. But well, what, uh, <laughs> tell us all the freedoms that Barack Hussein Obama has taken away. Get a load of this. Go ahead, tell him all the freedoms. Well, for one thing, he's taken over the car industry. If uh, if it was up to him, we'd be driving this little. He's taken away the freedom to for like for GM to uh, declare to go out of business right, is what he's right. done. He's taken away the freedom for those workers to lose their job, basically, right? That's right. That's right. right. And uh, he's taken away the people, you know, that want to make a lot of money. It's like they want to tax, uh, tax the devil out of them. You know, but he's lowered, uh, actually, 85% of Americans' taxes, right? Oh, yeah, right. Sure he has. But he has, hasn't he? Uh, I don't think so. Absolutely not. No. If, if you made less than $250,000, he's lowered your taxes. Yeah, right. That's what he says, but uh, he's a liar. But, but that's what he did do, though, didn't he? Uh, no. I mean, because no. I want to get a list. I want to get a list of all the freedoms that he's taken away. So the freedom of speech he hasn't done and the tax thing, I don't think, yet, right? All right. But what, what are the freedoms... Here's a list of the te freedoms that Barack Hussein Obama has taken away. If this man could take away all of our freedoms, I think he would take away our freedom to do anything and everything. Uh, thank you very much for your time and for speaking up. <laughs> so, uh, so that was my interview with uh, one of the Tea Partiers who were gathered back in October of 2009 out here in Los Angeles, furious 
about Democrats and Barack Obama, but having a little bit of trouble explaining exactly why they were so furious, what they were so furious about. So if it wasn't really about freedom, if it's not really about big government or, or economics or being taxed enough already, as they like to say, what is it? Why are they so angry? Uh, here to talk about that is uh, Sean McElway. He's a research associate at Demos.org. He's a frequent contributor at Salon, Al Jazeera America, and now at Vox.com. His work has been featured in The Atlantic, uh, Rolling Stone, Politico. His latest piece with collaborator Jason McDaniel at Vox describes their new study on the Tea Party and evidence for the one thing that seems to be the best predictor for whether someone might be inclined to self-identify with the so-called Tea Party. Sean McElwee, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. All right, thanks for having me on. Good to have you here. All right, so if it's not a lack of freedom or fear of economic disaster or opposition to big government, big spending, remember the tea, after the tea baggers uh, phrase was criticized, they decided that the Tea Party, the tea, stood for taxed enough already. So if it's not those things, uh, what does your new study with Jason McDaniel find that drives the Tea Party movement uh, more than anything else? Yeah, so we initially went in here, and the question we were asking is, is it economic peril, right? This is one thing mm -hmm. that people are sort of ang anxious about, the Great Recession, or is it racial resentment? And what we find is that the effect of economic peril is actually very weak, whereas the effect of racial resentment is very strong. It's actually the strongest predictor of support for the Tea Party. What is... What does your study, how does your study describe racial resentment, and is that different than racism, per se? I mean, I think both racial resentment and racial stereotyping are part of uh, the phenomenon of racism. But racial resentment, specifically, the questions that are being asked here is, do you think that if black people would just work harder, they would be just as successful as whites? And so it's not a straight-up stereotyping in that you're saying, I think that black people are lazier. Mm -hmm. But what you have is sort of a colorblind uh, racial attitudes in which sort of racial attitudes are able to be expressed in our political system and are coded. And that's what we're arguing is happening in this case with both the Tea Party and with even, you know, when Rick Santorum says they need to stop, we need to stop giving money to the blahs, right? Or when Newt Gingrich calls uh, Obama well, and the food stamp president. It, uh, with uh, Santorum, he said blah, but he, he started to say blacks. He sort right. of stopped. Uh, and and uh, Gingrich using uh, food stamps as sort of a sort of a, a, a dog whistle for the racial yep. resentment, as you see it. So how how do you go about determining? How how does your study go about scientifically determining this and separating the idea that well, it's not fear of uh, you know economic collapse, fear of being taxed too much, but rather racial resentment? Because you actually go through this in a scientific way, a political science way and determine there is uh, a difference and racial resentment is a greater driver than those other things, correct? Yes. Yeah, so we, using the National Election Studies 2012 data set, um, I mean, we control for race, ethnicity, partisanship, ideology, income, education, gender, age, religiosity. We're even controlling for things like um, resentment towards illegal immigration. And then what we did is we created two variables. One of them combines the four racial resentment questions together. The other one combines four questions or five questions related to economic peril. So this is, 
Uh, are you currently struggling to pay your bills? Mm-hmm. Um, have you had like a, a large bill that came due recently? How worried are you about your future, economically speaking? Mm-hmm. And once you sort of run the model and compare the various strengths of these variables, the one that ends up becoming really the overwhelming predictor of Tea Party identification is uh, racial resentment. And you you find, for example, that higher levels of racial resentment are correlated with a preference for decreased government spending and services. But uh, so you seem to be indicating that the racial resentment comes first, that because they have this racial resentment, they then would like to see the government spend less because they perceive government spending as uh, as helping minorities. Is Absolutely. That sort of so, a, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, take another survey that was done by YouGov. I actually helped work with them to mm-hmm. get these questions on their survey. And what it asks is just a simple question: Do you think that most welfare recipients are white, black, or Hispanic? The correct answer to that question is white. Mm-hmm. The majority of welfare recipients are white. But what we find is that among whites, only 24% of people accurately answer, and among Republicans only 20% accurately answer, and 45% of Republicans incorrectly believe that African Americans are the majority of welfare recipients. When in fact, not only are African Americans not the majority of people who are on traditional welfare programs like food stamps, Mm -hmm. if you consider all of government services and spending, white people actually disproportionately benefit from programs like Social Security, programs like the mortgage interest deduction. So what the right has done is they have convinced many people in the Tea Party and in the conservative movement that government benefits that help uh, people of color are handouts, whereas government benefits that help white people are things that white people have worked hard for and deserve. And so when you're talking about government spending and government services, you are talking about an issue that is inextricably tied up with uh, race, racism, and racial resentment. And so, I, and I don't know if this particular study looks at, at this point, but is this something that uh, we, we can tell exists more when there is a, a, a Democrat in office? In other words, because, you know, I'm thinking back to, you know, now they call them the Obama phones. Uh, the, the Fox News, you know, talks about free phones for black people or whatever. Well, that actually was a program, uh, I believe, that started back with Ronald Reagan. Um and so it ran under George W. Bush and everything else, but it didn't come up. So is it only when we have a, a Democrat in the White House that these uh, ideas of racial resentment are used? Or is this just pretty much uh, built into, well, I don't want to, well, the, the Republican movement uh, or, and or the Tea Party movement? Is this sort of at the core of, of both of these movements, no matter, who, no matter who is, uh, you know, in office? Right. And I would say, first off, we, we did another uh, piece actually in the salon earlier, but what we, what we showed was increasing and decreasing federal aid to poor. Mm-hmm. The effect of switching from Democrat to Republican is the same effect in terms of magnitude as switching from low levels of racial resentment to high levels of racial resentment. So, like, the power of, like, racially tinged views is as powerful as partisanship. So that should really tell us that this is like a very strong thing that we're talking about. I think the question is less, is it a Republican, Democrat, or office? Mm-hmm. Then who is this program benefiting? If it's a program that overwhelmingly benefits white people or middle-income people, it's seen as an okay benefit, right? This is what Social Security is. Um, but if it's a, bu- a program that is seen 
either incorrectly or correctly as helping majority people of color, then it is it is now suspect. And, and you know that's interesting because I remember w- when we were interviewing people uh, for that uh, for that documentary we played at the top. Yeah, you had a lot of people there, a lot of Tea Party folks. Uh, you know, sort of repeating the line, "Keep your government hands off my Medicare." So it wasn't. Uh, you know, government programs per se that they were angry about. It wasn't government spending per se that it was angry about. And, you know, Donald Trump arguably has called for a lot of government spending for all manner of things, roads and bridges and hospitals and all of that stuff, Uh, you know, not to mention the bombing and the wars. Uh, and, you know, the the Tea Party doesn't seem to oppose that. It is something else. And, yeah, it does sound like it is, uh, well, as your study suggests, uh, perhaps more racially motivated. Because also, uh, Sean McAwee, this entire movement supposedly started in response to the global financial crash and the mortgage scams that uh, that caused it. Remember Rick Santelli of Fox uh, Business News was described as the father of the Tea Party movement. Uh, so how did it begin as a response to economics and then morph or, you know, purportedly a response to economics and then morph into a collection of racially uh, resentful and or fearful uh, Republicans or, or conservatives, whatever they want to want to call themselves. Was this a, a manipulation by the media or, or you know, to, to, mo- to morph it from one thing to the other? Or did it always start out that way? Was it simply a mask for, you know, opposition to Democrats uh, by tapping into the racial resentment that Fox News and Glenn Beck and those folks know is actually out there. Well, this is what's so sort of interesting about the way the Tea Party movement starts, right, is it starts after the global financial crisis, but it's being led by a wealthy, you know, the the rant is done by a wealthy, you know, person, financial person who's mm-hmm. partially responsible for this crisis, the financial sector. And instead of railing about the government bailouts of AEG and those bonuses, AIG and these bonuses, what he's railing against is the government bailing out homeowners, right? Like, this is a directly an attack on people who are perceived to be, you know, subprime borrowers. And when we think about subprime borrowers, right, when we think about the homeowners the government's bailing out, what Rick is doing in that rant is he's racializing this, right? He's saying the government is helping people of color who were, you know, shouldn't have got those loans or were lazy, right? So, like, from the beginning, what you're seeing is this sort of racially coded rhetoric. And so I think right from the beginning, you have a very great explanation of conservative politics of the last 30 years, which is plutocratic policies being wrapped up in racist rhetoric in order to benefit a plutocratic agenda. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of white, middle class, and working class people who have bought into that story. The Ryan budget... 66% 66% of it cuts come from the very small portion of the budget that benefits low-income people. That's, that, that is, the question is not, should government be bigger or smaller for Republicans? The question is, how can the government best be made a vehicle to benefit the rich? Mm. Uh, yeah, and not only to benefit the rich, but to also not benefit, you know, certain people. And do, do they... Uh, do they ever describe it in those terms, uh, you know, when you see it uh, you know, playing out on Fox News or with the Glenn Becks and so forth? Do, do they ever describe it in those terms, or is it more of this constant, subtle dog whistle, like the Newt Gingrich and, uh, you know, calling Obama the, the food stamp president? Doesn't out and out say it, but 
I think it sends a clear enough message. Is that the way this is played? Or do they ever admit that, yes, you know, this is about racial resentment and those uh, poor black people are taking all of our money? (laughs) The trick is you can never actually say it. Mm -hmm. If you went out and said it, most Americans would be very turned off by their language. But here's a great example of this. If you look at Martin Gillens, one of his earliest studies, is actually just on media, even nonpartisan media, right? Not Fox News. We're talking about local media stations. Right. When they portray a poor person, who is it? And it's always going to be an African-American person. Right. Disproportionately. But here's what he finds is even more important. When they portray a poor person who we're supposed to feel sympathy for, the working poor, mm-hmm. they're always white. Mm. Right? When we, when we see an old elderly person, it's, it's a white person. Mm. But when we're seeing a poor person who we're supposed to feel upset about, then it's always a person of color. And so this is, this is, and this is again, people who I'm sure in the local media station aren't intentionally doing this. Right. They're subconsciously doing this. And what Fox has done is essentially taken that model and actually weaponized it, politicized it, and used it to, you know, attack policies that benefit the vast majority of Americans. You're right. Uh, when I think about it, and you describe this in your article at Vox.com, uh, you, when, yeah, when, when they talk about poor people, it's it's black people, uh, at least when they're trying to, you know, gin up uh, anger against them in some fashion. Elderly, pe- elderly people are never black elderly. They're always white elderly, it seems like, in those, in those stories where we're supposed to feel sorry for them. And it's interesting, Sean McElwee, that you say it may not even be on purpose. It may just be the default uh, reaction, perhaps the, the, you know, the def- default white privilege, uh, even amongst these, uh, these local news outlets who don't have the same kind of uh, political agenda that Fox News obviously does. Can can all of this be applied more generally, Sean, to uh, to to opposition to Barack Obama himself? And the reason I ask is because I've you know heard for many years uh, from many people that you know the hatred driving so many on the right against Obama is because he is black. And, uh, you know, while I'm sure there is, uh, you know, a lot of people who may feel that way, I recall a very similar, arguably in some ways, even worse uh, hatred and opposition to Bill Clinton when he was in office. And so it always seemed to me, uh, and again, anecdotally, unlike your uh, your more empirical studies, that opposition to Obama was based on the fact that Republicans simply up you know, oppose Democrats, period, that they would find a way to hate no matter who was in the White House if he or she had a D next to their name. Um, but is it more than that? In fact, is is a lot of this built on racial resentment or wouldn't we see the same opposition if it was a white Democrat in the White House at this point? Right. So, I mean, there's two questions. There is the question, would Republicans hate Obama if he was white? Absolutely, they would. Would, would that hate be as as racialized? Certainly not. And we can actually show Spencer Piston, who is a professor at Syracuse University, using the same uh, survey that we were using, the NES, has, has done a similar study and has showed actually that there is some of this, uh, some of the opposition to Obama is racially tinged. And so there is certainly that factor playing in. And I want to just get back to something that you actually noted sort of mm-hmm. in your interview, which is this information question. Um, one of the things that we note in uh, the Salon piece is that if you look at NES and you look at people who say inequality is bad. A- right, a- I'm sorry, wait, a- a- you said NES? 
NES, yeah, the National Election Studies. I see. Okay, and that's who you—that's what you used to 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 base your study on the the responses to yeah. questions from the National Election Study. Okay, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. So if you look at people who say that inequality is bad, and then you go across political knowledge, right, which is asking questions about who is the Speaker of the House, right? If people get zero questions right, they are less likely to say that that government should reduce inequality. Whereas if they get four questions right. Most people who say that inequality is bad agree that government should do something about inequality. So what we have in a lot of cases is people who are very frustrated about what's going on, mm -hmm. but lack the political knowledge to actually understand the causal mechanism for how this bad thing is happening. Mm. And if you don't have that, right, if you don't connect government policy to your lived experiences, what you end up doing is you're saying, I'm upset I don't know why my life is bad, but it's bad. And if someone tells you, oh, the reason your life is bad is because, you know, immigrants are taking your jobs uh -huh. or because the government is helping black people with uh -huh. your tax dollars, people are susceptible to that message. And there's actually studies showing if you give people objective information about the parties and make them consider it, they systematically shift their views towards the Democratic Party and towards the left. That, and I think that's a big problem. Th that's when you're giving them just information about what I issues, uh, what things each of the parties stand for, but without identifying them that this is a Republican belief or a Democratic belief, just give them right. the issues. And yep. they tend to go towards the Democrats. Yeah. Which brings up, and, and the point uh, you, know, you raise, when somebody comes along and says, yeah, I know you're mad, and here's what we're going to do about it, you know, w without giving actually, you know, any information as far as why they are so mad and what could actually be done about it, uh, they tend to go to those people like a Donald Trump. Which brings me to my next question: What the hell happened to the Tea Party? Why don't we hear much from them uh, anymore? We don't see their rallies anymore. We don't see them holding up their signs anymore. Uh, where are all of those Tea Party people? Has the Tea Party uh, essentially gone away? Has it found its way into the into the body politic of the Republican Party? Are they uh, are they now supporting candidates instead of out there having rallies? Where are these Tea Party people? I think the question of where the Tea Party went really depends on how much you think the Tea Party is sort of the cynical creation of sort of the Koch brothers the and manipulative elites, which it certainly is in part, um, I think that what you've seen is you've sort of seen a splintering, right? There is very much the sense that the Tea Party was sort of cultivated by very big plutocratic donors. Well, not the sense, and, not the sense, the reality, yeah. Sean. I yeah. mean, they really were. I was, you know, mentioned that big bus at the top of the uh, uh, the segment, and I remember going and interviewing these people, and this big bus came along, and, was, and I'm like, wow. That is a big fancy bus. We don't see that, uh, you know, from progressive protesters. They're lucky if they have a, you know, a VW hippie van, uh, much less one of these huge RV type things. So yeah, I mean, there was always huge money. It was always the Koch brothers. It was always American for prosperity. But in any event, I cut you off. Please continue. Yeah, no, no, no. That, so that certainly exists. Yeah, and I think you're seeing it. Uh, uh, there was actually a recent study, uh, Alexander Hotel Fernandez and Theta Scotch Bowl at Harvard. And what they actually show is what most strongly predicts whether or not a right-to-work law passes in a state is not public opinion. No correlation. The strong correlation is how much money, how much effort, how many paid state directors does the AFP have in that state. Mm. And what you're seeing is, is that infrastructure that in many ways created and facilitated the Tea Party still exists and is still at war with progressivism. But I think a lot of the people who are sort of Tea Party activists 
are now the people who are making up Trump's base and making up, you know, Cruz's base. And that is why we sort of wanted to, even though the Tea Party doesn't seem like a salient thing now, is to question what what was motivating that in 2012, because we think that a lot of those things that are motivating the Tea Party are now motivating the people who are really out to for at Trump rallies. And though he doesn't often talk about African-Americans as much, uh, but he talks about Muslims, he talks about Mexicans, that's uh, Donald Trump's base. That's his game. That's what he does. And uh, I guess you're suggesting he has tapped into that exact same racial resentment, even though he's not talking about as much about, uh, you know, black people in this country. He is talking about uh, the racial resentment for, uh, you know, keeping out the Muslims, keeping out the Mexicans. That's exactly what you're what you're getting at in this study, it seems. Yeah, he's tapped into the same thing that, you know, Patrick Buchanan tapped into yeah. earlier and even, you know, other politicians, populist politicians have tapped into this before. Uh, one of the key differences, I think, between Trump and the Koch brothers is if you look in surveys, one thing that people who love Trump want is they also want strong Social Security benefits. Mm-hmm. So you have a nice. movement that is essentially based around ensuring that the state continues to benefit middle-class white mm-hmm. people. And that is very much at the core of this movement. And it's, it's been the core of populist movements for decades in the United States. This is just the first time, I think, where you have a GOP elite that has been so discredited, mm-hmm. right, that they can't really rein in, at least in the current, current state, they mm-hmm. can't rein in this sort of uh, movement fascinating it's fascinating and the way you went about it scientifically in here to separate you know the idea that you know so many tea partiers say well i'm a tea partier because i'm a conservative or because i'm concerned about big government or because i'm in trouble economically and how you show that mm, nope that's not really it it does seem to be the consistent thread through line here seems to be racial resentment really fascinating really interesting work sean thank you again for it to you and your uh, your co-author here jason mcdaniel check out this uh, this report at Vox.com with the headline, There's Powerful Evidence That Racial Attitudes Drive Tea Party Support. Go figure. Thank you, Sean. Always great talking to you, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me on. You bet. We'll do it again soon. Okay, a quick break, and we are back with more Bradcast right after this, including Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Melting right here on the broadcast with Desi Doyen. I'm uh, I'm Brad Friedman, and uh, before we get to our green news report, Des, some breaking news that has come in while we've been on air here today. This massive gas leak out in Porter Ranch, about an hour outside of Los Angeles, here uh, has temporarily been stopped, Good. according to uh, officials with Southern California Gas. They announced this uh, that they have controlled the flow of gas. From uh, from that well near Porter Ranch, SoCal Gas said the relief well has uh, reached the base of the leaking well and that officials are now pumping heavy fluids to temporarily control the flow of gas out of the leaking well. That could keep the leak plugged permanently, but they uh, stress that they uh, this is just the first step, that they must now pour uh, cement to uh, fully block the leak. That could take several days. 
but it is now temporarily stopped. Uh, and this is huge. This was a huge, huge leak. Some 80,000 metric tons of gas, mostly methane, has been spewing into the atmosphere now for months. Over the past three months, according to the L.A. Times, the well has spewed more greenhouse gases than any other facility in California. So good news. Yep. Good news there. Uh, For maybe some less good news, let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. No, we will not allow back into the White House a political party which is so beholden to the fossil fuel industry that they cannot even acknowledge the scientific reality of climate change. Let it go to Bernie Sanders slams Republican presidential candidates on climate change denial after winning New Hampshire in a landslide. The science tells us we have to do more. Supreme Court says mm, not right now as it halts historic new emission standards for power plants. UN moves ahead anyway on emission standards for the airline industry. Plus, Heat wave in the Arctic as winter sea ice hits the lowest level ever recorded. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. So the groundhog, Puxitani Phil, uh, said it's going to be an early spring, which means warmer weather. So naturally, the conservatives now think that Puxitani Phil is in the tank with the liberals on global warming. Oh, like he's not. Wake up, sheeple. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I know you had to be uh, happy hearing Bernie Sanders talk about climate change about three different times during his victory speech in New Hampshire. Yes, it was great. In his victory speech after his landslide win in the New Hampshire Democratic presidential primary this week, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders scathingly attacked the Republican Party's denial of climate science as a primary reason to keep them out of the White House. He went on to echo Pope Francis in describing climate action as our moral responsibility. We have a moral responsibility to work with countries throughout the world to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. And the crowd went wild. Yes, they did. And in her concession speech, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton called for the U.S. to become a clean energy superpower of the world, launching a national mission to create millions of jobs, building new renewable energy infrastructure. Not surprisingly, on the Republican side, not a single Republican presidential candidate mentioned climate change in New Hampshire at all. Color me shocked. Meanwhile, we're the first generation to feel the impact of climate change, and the last generation that can do something about it. And that's why I committed the United States to leading the world on this challenge. Because I believe there is such a thing as being too late. Well, the Supreme Court disagrees. That was President Obama back in August announcing his landmark clean power plan, the first ever standards for the nation's power plants to cut the carbon emissions that cause dangerous global warming. As if to prove that elections have consequences, on Tuesday, the conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court in a very narrow five to four decision put a temporary stay on those new emissions standards, halting their implementation while a coalition of states and fossil fuel interests challenge 
challenge their legality in court. This ruling is unprecedented. Never before has the court issued a stay on any federal regulation undergoing lower court review. This is an ominous sign that the court's conservative majority could overturn it. So this case is still being heard at the lower court level. Yes. And the court has said that while it's being heard, these standards still must move forward. And then the Supreme Court comes in and says, no, no, we have to stop it until the lower court has figured things out. States can go forward if they want to, but the Supreme Court is giving them a pass if they don't want to. The four liberal justices on the court said they wouldn't have even taken up the issue. Just amazing. Talk about your activist courts. But the world is moving ahead, even if the U.S. isn't for now. The United Nations this week proposed the first ever limits on carbon emissions for the airline industry. It's the fastest growing sector of emissions. Environmental groups said the proposed standards are far too weak to make a difference, but United Nations officials defended the rules, saying they will spur innovation in research and development of low-carbon alternatives to jet fuel. Well, don't tell the U.S. Supreme Court. Finally, up in the Arctic, it's deep winter and sea ice should be building up toward its annual maximum extent. However, with unusually mild temperatures this winter, including record warmth in December that saw the temperatures go above freezing in the Arctic, scientists now say that in January, the Arctic hit the lowest sea ice extent on record since satellite measurements began in 1979, according to the National Snow and Ice Data Center. That's equivalent to missing a region of ice the size of Texas, New Mexico, Maryland, and New Hampshire combined. So that whole thing about global warming being over, not so over? Not so over. Imagine that. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Yep, and we've got to stop. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, Sean McAwee of Demos.org. If you missed any portion of this program or any of our other broadcasts, you can download them anytime at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where we hope you will give us a good review, make it a little bit easier for everyone else in the world to hear about the broadcast. All right, if you want to drop me an email, I am bradcast at bradblog.com, and you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>